0: Tony and this is Matt and this is what did we miss the podcast where we're resolving our pop culture blind spots one episode at a
1: time Tony yes Matt did you hear the good news what good news the criterion channel has premiered that's great yeah uh, it's amazing I love it Uh, there was like a big gaping hole in my heart uh, once Filmstruck had disappeared, Filmstruck was Criterion in the Turner Classic movie streaming service, and they kind of went away because they didn't have enough subscribers. But Criterion persevered, and now they premiered their new service. What I really love about it is, unlike a lot of other streaming services like Netflix and even the Amazon stuff, where it's all algorithm-based, they have kind of like curated lists of things, which is great for Discovery. And... Uh, on launch, they had this whole thing called uh, Columbia Noir, which is all from the 50s and these noir movies uh, from the production company Columbia. Uh, and man, I've discovered so many great movies. And this one in particular is called Murder by Contract that I just deeply love. And it's by this director named Irving Lerner. Uh, and it's this kind of like, uh, it's this almost like kind of postmoderny kind of noir feels very much like the template for a lot of Jim Jarmusch movies. This contract killer that's kind of cold and calculated and he's new to it, but he kind of treats it as like a job. And he's on this job that's uh, really difficult and the people that hired him are kind of haranguing him. And they're continually pushing to make sure he gets it done and they're hanging out and have these hangout sessions and kind of shoot the shit. And the soundtrack is just amazing. So it's great. It discovered so many good things. But what's also great is it has like this deep well of kind of extra features and like little short things. And I watched this great little clip. It's 10 minutes. And it is about this director named uh, Alain uh, Rene, who's a French director, did Hiroshima, uh, Mon Amour, and uh, Je T'aime, Je T'aime and a bunch of other great French movies, really weird movies. And it's an interview with Stan Lee. And Stan Lee was uh, supposed to make a movie with him. Back in uh, like the late sixties, seventies, I've seen this. Yeah, it's called Monster. They were there, so they they became fast friends because I guess uh, Alan was a big comic book fan, and I guess Fellini was too, who had reached out to Stanley at one point, point. and they got together and became really good friends. And Stanley said that their movie was called Monster Maker, and it was loosely based off of Roger Corman. Actually, He was a famous uh, B movie director who also in the early nineties was a producer on. The a Fantastic Four movie and and they tried to make this movie together uh, and uh, it kind of fell apart I guess uh, but I guess Alan wanted to make a Spider Man movie too which would have been the weirdest thing imaginable because his movies are they're really strange movies interesting um, yeah but it was really fun it's really uh, really interesting uh, yeah Stan Lee a is an interesting character that's for sure yeah and he's a subject well partial subject of today's episode where we're talking about the Fantastic Four yes specifically
0: we are talking about the Silver Age uh, original incarnation of the Fantastic Four as created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. So this is one that I'm not familiar with, but you are uh, very much a fan of. So why yeah. don't you tell me about your personal relationship to the Fantastic Four?
1: Oh, wow. Um, well, I think, you know, I, I had mentioned last episode that this was sort of my origin story in, in a lot of ways. So I think even more broadly speaking, we should talk a little bit about our relationship with, to comics. Uh, This is our first comic book episode, not including our mini episode a few weeks back, which was on Infinity Gauntlet, where we got into it just a little bit. When I was a kid, my mom and I lived with my grandparents and my uncles. So it was uh, my five uncles and um, my grandparents, my mom, me, all all in one house. And my uncle Skip, he had this drawer. They had kind of like a, it's almost like a second kitchen, that was kind of like connected to the backyard. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like a porch kind of patio kind of thing with like this little mini kitchen. And there was this drawer that I remember the smell of. And he collected comics. And uh, when I was really, really little, I mean really little, I would go to this drawer and just open it up and just pick through these comics and just kind of look at all the drawings. And that kind of like established my love for comics at a really young age and uh, for drawing. So- I would copy a lot of the kind of artwork in those comics when I was a kid. And I really took to a lot of things, particularly Spider-Man. He had a lot of kind of like the 70s, 80s superhero stuff. But that's also how I got introduced to the Dark Knight comic, which is uh, you know one of the most popular series of all time now. I started collecting comics myself when I was probably like 10 or 11. And I had always read his um, until I had moved out. And then my parents were weird. They were always like, Oh, well, if you're collecting them, you can't read them because they're about, you know, collecting them, which is really weird. I think my dad was coming from a perspective of like collecting baseball cards, you know, like, oh, they're precious. And I was like, and I I always hated that. And I still hate that. I always think comics should be read. Right. Um, So I started collecting them and I was a a weekly, I I became, once I was old enough and capable on my own, I was a weekly comic book store devotee. I would go every Wednesday and I had a pull list. I came to Fantastic Four in particular, probably a little later. I don't know if I collected them regularly until, I don't know, maybe my late 20s, early 30s. And a lot of that was trying to reread some of this older stuff. So I got this, you know, essential uh, collection of some of the early Stan Lee and Jack Kirby books and the Fantastic Four in general, and I kind of really took to it quickly, mostly because I love that kind of big cosmic stories that they told in here.
0: Yeah, the the cosmic stuff was always a blind spot for me. My uh, my my background with comics when I was really young, I would pick up uh, occasional Spider-Man or X-Men issues. Um, The cartoons were big at the time. Mm -hmm. The Spider-Man and the X-Men Saturday Morning cartoons, which were very faithful to you know major storylines in the comics, unlike Batman the animated series, which was certainly the best of them at that time. But was still still my favorite version of Batman. Oh, it's absolutely. I can't read a comic without hearing that Batman or that Joker. Whereas my parents would laugh and start humming the the song from the Adam West Batman. The animated Batman was sort of what defined the character for me. Mm-hmm. But with the Marvel stuff, those those cartoons were very close to the, the storylines, but I didn't quite understand how continuity worked in comics when I was a little kid, so it was very confusing. It didn't help that when I was in, you know, maybe one of the several times I decided to make an effort to get into comics, I'm like, God, oh, this is it. I'm going to pay attention. It was like the, the clone saga for Spider-Man. <laughs> so it was not only already super confusing, but... Um, Not well regarded. But then in high school, a good friend of mine was a lifelong comic fan and sort of ushered me in, got me into X-Men and Daredevil at the time, stuff like Hellboy, some DC stuff too. I never, but I never got into Fantastic Four. I was very familiar with the characters and some of their sort of ancillary, you know, second string characters that were identified to that branch of Marvel Comics. But I don't know what it was. I I just uh it just didn't grab me at the time, and I don't know if maybe they're just maybe the title was having you know a, a low period or something. It didn't ever seem like they were as top tier as a Spider-Man or the X-Men or some other Marvel characters, at least not when I was reading comics. And then you know through college, I kind of petered out. Yeah, I collected them. I I kept them bagged and boarded. I agree, comics should be too. read. My precious keeping of them was more to alleviate the symptoms of just leaving them. In an attic or a basement for too long. Um, my dad's old box of you know uh, late '60s DC stuff were all just peeling and torn covers, and it, it, it made them difficult to read as a kid when he gave me that box because they were falling apart. So
1: yeah, my uncle had these oversized, incredible Hulk comics, and they are all kind of they looked more um, kind of like pencil drawings than pen and ink. They're all black and white, and they're just massive and they're kind of tattered and torn that was part of the appeal to them at the time and and now too he gave me all of his comics at a certain point so I have like a deep affection for a lot of that when I started reading comics unfortunately it was around the worst period which was the 90s and there was a lot of focus on you know the artists and it was kind of the era of the extreme and you know badass stuff Wolverine Became probably the most popular character at the time. Wolverine is fine in and of himself, but everybody becoming Wolverine was a, it's a bit much. I ended up, you know, because I was reading a lot of those big 90s guys like, you know, Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson and uh, Rob Liefeld. They all jumped ship to Image Comics. They created their own company. And at the time, it was something that I was also learning that they didn't have control over these characters because they were owned by Marvel. And so, That was me also learning more about the industry and learning about Jack Kirby and what had happened to him and all those creators who created all these characters that are now so ingrained in popular culture. But through Image, which was probably when it started, a lot of crap uh, (laughs) now that I look back on it. But through that, I kind of started getting into guys like uh, Mike Mignola and Hellboy, like you were talking about, and Sin City. Um, And then going back and filling in kind of some blank spaces that I had for older comics. And that kind of led to some more independent stuff. Obviously, the big stuff like Mouse and then Watchmen, uh, all those canonical kind of important comic stories. And then a lot of independent stuff and then slowly leading my way back to kind of all these 60s kind of stuff where I've really been loving a lot of older Spider-Man and Thor and Fantastic Four and stuff. Stanley and Jack Kirby's whole run is their whole run of Fantastic Four is considered to be one of the the greatest runs of any creative team, in all superhero comics. So it was kind of hard to say like, oh, read all a hundred of these issues. So the point where you know the pinnacle of of their run, I guess, is the introduction of. Silver Surfer and Galactus. So this is issues 48, 49, and 50, I Yes. Yes. So that's what I kind of figured we'd start with because a lot of people consider this to be one of the greatest comic stories of all time. Is it? I really... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: I guess you put me on the spot here. I did. Um. I mean, it's impossible at this point to separate it from what came after it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, that first issue in this trilogy, the Galactus trilogy, starts uh, at the climax of some battle they had been having with the Inhumans, and it really just throws you into the mix. You get a sense of the kind of wild characters you're going to see, and when I say wild, I mean the, the types of characters that Jack Kirby is illustrating here. I was familiar with his work, and I guess to some extent to Stan's actual work, not Stan the person, uh, their work together in sort of abstract terms. I had a mental image of what a Jack Kirby comic would look like. I had a a mental idea of what uh, a Stan Lee comic would sound like. And this didn't disappoint. If anything, I think I was more impressed. The volume that you lent me is in black and white, which on the one hand I was thinking, oh, well, I'm missing out on the whole thing, not seeing it in color as it was originally presented. But it really allowed me to, to really lock in on what Jack Kirby was doing. A lot of the detail really came through. It's a lot of fun, man.
1: I think what's crazy about this run is just the rate at which new ideas and concepts in the superhero storytelling world just come. Oh, it's, it's constant. constantly new characters, new sci-fi ideas. It's just overwhelming.
0: While also taking the time to be super
1: melodramatic.
0: Johnny Storm is obsessing over a, a girl he has to leave behind yeah. underground. And- I don't
1: know if you uh, went back at all, but... <laughs> The way they discover the Inhumans is, um, you know, Johnny sees one of them and he gets this crush on her and he just wants to talk to her. And she's like, leave me alone, dude. And he's just like, no, 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 no. I just want to talk to you. He's kind of, he's like horn dog. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. just trying to, it's kind of inappropriate, his behavior. But then he kind of like convinces her that since he's, you know, be engulfed in flames that he's an Inhuman. And then so they, she takes him to their lair, I guess. And so... <laughs> It's interesting how like they kind of like gets roped into that kind of story. It's unexpected. Yeah, and it's also,
0: it's super dense in every way. The writing is very dense. The illustration is really dense. There's just so much, they cram so much in every panel. We should briefly
1: mention how comics have, storytelling style has changed. And this is probably, this term was probably coined maybe a good 15 or so years ago, but they talked about how modern comics, usually starting around the 2000s and and forward, have this decompressed style of storytelling. What that boils down to is what happens on one page of a Fantastic Four comic now happens in like an issue (laughs) or a half an issue of a modern comic book. So a lot of comics at the time were very incident heavy, but I think Fantastic Four is probably the one that had the most. And it even has like this serialized form of storytelling and the fact that Even though the issues are sort of self-contained, they still carry over into each other, and they're overlapping a lot of stuff.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of, you know, sidebars with asterisks to tell you where to go back to. I mean, Stan Lee is narrating everything that's happening in the panel he's narrating. I would say it was obnoxious if it weren't so goddamn charming. Uh, Stan Lee, especially with the movies, really became a character in and of himself, and his writing reflects the way that character talks.
1: Well, it's interesting because I guess we could kind of... start about you know how he got his start and he he sort of you know has his own alter ego his name is Stanley Martin Lieber and he wanted to be a novelist he wanted to write serious prose and he got a job at Marvel Comics which was called Timely Comics at the time in like the late 30s I believe and he started off as like the office boy. So he just kind of like a gopher and just, you know, get things for people. Uh, and he slowly worked his way up to editor. And he just stayed the editor from that point on. And Kirby, he had kind of started working for Timely in the 50s. And he was a- ahead of Stan at that point. And he started doing a lot of kind of monster comics. When he came on board, uh, you know, they were ready to close doors. They were close to bankruptcy. And Stan was just like, oh, this is it. We're done for. And Kirby was like, no, no, no. I I have some ideas. I think we'll be okay. And so Kirby brought in a bunch of his ideas, the biggest one being Captain America. Uh, and he co-created that with, I believe... Well, I mean, that was, that was well before the 50s. The Captain America... Oh, that's 41. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. But he co-created that with Joe Simon. But yeah, so uh, he left in the 50s. I think that's what it was. Anyway, when they yeah. came together for Fantastic Four, the...
0: The, the sort of origin story that I heard was that some you know somebody at Marvel noticed that DC was gaining traction with Justice League, which was their yeah. superhero team mm-hmm. and they they wanted one of their own.
1: Yeah, I think you know, there are these big kind of turning points in the medium of superhero comics. The first big, big one is obviously Superman. Uh, he came along and became instantly popular. The big one in the eighties obviously is Watchmen. And that's kind of steered the course for modern comics. The big one in the 60s was Fantastic Four number one. It came along and kind of took a lot of those ideas that you saw in Justice League with the team stuff. But what it did it was it gave the characters personal lives. Justice League sat down at the table and they said, this is the plan. We're doing the plan. And Fantastic Four sat down at the table and they said... What should the plan be? And they all had different ideas. Oh, they're arguing all the time. All the time, and that's the big distinction between them. Very, very first issue, the thing worries about finding some clothes to to hide himself. That interiority to the characters' lives is what really set it apart. And everyone tried to emulate them from that point on. And that's what separated Marvel in general. And they applied that to everything else. Right. From that yeah. Point. Peter
0: Parker wasn't a superhero. He was a, a an awkward kid. The X Men
1: yeah. were these you know, freaks
0: and cast out by society. Yeah. and
1: The Avengers took that arguing to another level. They almost didn't want to be a team. <laughs> you know, they had to be a team. I guess we should maybe talk a little bit about what Stan coined uh, as the Marvel method. Right. Uh, which is uh, the way the Marvel offices were run, which is essentially whatever writer was assigned to the comic would, meet with the artist, pitch them their idea for the story. The artist would take that idea or the synopsis, draw the whole issue, do whatever they wanted with it, present it back to the writer. The writer would fill in the, the dialogue. I suppose we really should probably get into some of the controversy surrounding uh, the mythology of, of Stanley. The Marvel method kind of, to me, it talks to maybe his ability to kind of Rewrite history in a sense. There's a lot of controversy surrounding, you know, how much is Stan really responsible for? A lot of the artists that worked on the core comics of the 60s, whether it's uh, Kirby or Steve Ditko, they all seem to take greater ownership over these characters than they believe they were given.
0: Well, this is something that's sort of uh, indicative of. The entire comics industry up until, I mean, it wasn't as openly discussed an issue, but none of these guys had any real monetary or creative control over anything. I mean, Stan Lee, by virtue of, you know, regardless of how much thought he put in the origins of these characters, he was writing every issue and that was constant. And he sort of became, through longevity, the spokesman for Marvel. But you look at the guys who created Superman and they died broke their families were fighting for them just to get acknowledgement in the credits of Superman the movie in the late 70s yeah well, that's
1: why Kirby left in the first place he left in the the 40s or late 40s early 50s to work to DC to have a little more say and a little more money because he saw Captain America was making a lot of money he wasn't seeing anything and then he was promised a lot more control and freedom and so when he came back to Marvel by the end of the 60s he was just like again like I don't have this. I don't see this.
0: Right. Well, you mentioned Image earlier. and It was basically these guys were treated like work for hire um, really until those four or five guys broke off and created Image. And the whole idea was that we're going to make our own comics. We're going to own it all. And anyone who wants to come and publish here, they're going to own all their stuff. And and that had sort of been a very loud, very, um, you know, typical of the early 90s kind of response to this problem that had been just ingrained in the whole industry since it was started I mean still there are these old timers who are you know making what they can signing stuff at conventions but they're not making anything from what they actually created back in the 60s 70s
1: whatever the big problem with the Stan and Jack stuff is that no one knows because it was only the two of them So, there's all these kind of apocryphal stories about who actually takes credit for what. I discovered this site called The Kirby Effect, which is the journal of the Jack Kirby Museum and Research Center. And on this site, it kind of tries to make the big case that, you know, Kirby consistently had the same kind of line of thinking about what exactly he was responsible for and what Stan was responsible for. And it kind of has through interviews and various different media kind of tries to make a case for kirby being the true creator of all this stuff there's a ton of quotes from kirby there's so many and it's hard to choose you know which ones but i have a bunch one where he says well he's being interviewed and they say in the stuff you worked on with stan was he writing at the time kirby goes no stan lee was not writing i was doing the writing it all came from my basement and i could tell you that if i ever began to intellectualize it was then all right that's unimportant all right, I'll tell you from a professional point of view. I was writing them. I was drawing them. But do you not necessarily subscribe to the idea of someone else, regardless of who it is, putting balloons in on a completely pencil page? I have a prejudice on it, but I want to get your opinion. My opinion is this. Stan Lee wrote the credits. I never wrote the credits. Wow. That's heavy stuff. And then Steve Dicko said, such is the power of a prestigious public spotlight and blind faith. These guys are very resentful of Stan. And the thing with Stan was he was the company man through and through. So just through sheer will of being the yes man at Marvel and being the face of Marvel for so long. I I was a kid. I thought he owned it, you know? Right. I did too. I mean, he was, you know, at Saturday Morning Cartoons,
0: he would show up at the end to talk about what just happened. The letters pages that were started after Fantastic Four got big in the 60s and that connection and that, that sort of that doorway into these aren't just fantastic worlds you know happening in in bright colors there are people behind them and and this guy Stan is talking to us and yeah. wants to know what we think about it and yeah it's all powerful and then from there it just the myth starts to snowball and it's you know and 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 what part of it is a, a runaway train and he just gets caught up in it and starts to yeah. believe it and then retcons his own origin stories a few times.
1: He's changed his story a few times. I have this one quote from Stan where he says, Much as I hate to admit it, I didn't produce our little Marvel masterpieces all by myself. No, mine was the task of originating the basic concept and then writing the script. However, I've long been privileged to collaborate with some of the most talented artists of all. Artists who would take my rough-hewn plots and refine them into the illustrated stories. Heading the list of such artists is Jolly Jack Kirby. Well, Kirby said in response, I wrote them all. Well, I never wrote the credits. Let's put it that way, all right? I would never call myself Jolly Jack. I would never say the books were written by Lee. The thing that gives this kind of line of thinking kind of any credence is the fact that Stan developed the Marvel method, which is the artist did everything. And then he would go in and fill in the words. And Kirby would write whatever he wanted in the margins for them to follow. And it's not just Kirby. It's Ditko and a lot of other artists at the time, too. And even Jim Starlin... And we talked about him in the Infinity Gauntlet mini-episode, but he's had many issues with Stan and with Marvel in general too, with the way he's treated and the way he created Thanos, and, and, and how that's been kind of... He's left like four or five times. What's funny about Marvel or, or comic book writers and artists is they're really similar to, it seems, to like professional wrestlers. Oh, yeah. They're really mistreated, and they go back and forth between companies.
0: Well, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that comparison because the movie The Wrestler effectively ruined comic conventions for me. And I was never a big comic convention guy. But there's that scene where you follow Mickey Rourke into, like, a, a VFW in some podunk suburb. And there's just all these broken old men with, like, their catheters just coughing, charging for their signature for the, like, four or five people who wandered in who, who cared enough to follow them and it just it broke my heart so much that i'm like i don't want to i don't want to go to a comic convention and just like <laughs> see the guy who wore the lizard mask in star trek pushing 80 barely able to sign his own name
1: I think wrestlers probably get the worst of it. Obviously, oh, yeah, because, it's obviously much yeah. more fiscal. But, but still, and I do think modern artists and writers are doing a lot better. I think they're advocating for themselves, and there's more options for independent stuff. Not that it's the best, because obviously a lot of them struggle, especially when it comes to healthcare and stuff like that. But, you know, we're, we're getting into the weeds now. You know, I don't want to kind of belabor this point about Stan, but Steve Ditko passed away recently, and it was really sad to me because... You know, Stan Lee also passed away. But Ditko is also responsible for Spider-Man. That image of the mask with the eyes and the web pattern is iconic. Everybody knows it. Stan is not responsible for that. But when Steve Ditko died, it was just... It only seemed like that people that were familiar with the 60s comics and were have been comics fans for a long time or interested in art in that way, they were the only ones that were kind of mourning his loss and not on this massive scale like when Stan died. And that really bummed me out. And that's the only reason why I feel that we should probably talk about this a bit. But let's get back into the comic and into the good, fun stuff. <laughs> <We> <laughs> and barely just got into it. shitting all over Stan Lee this whole time.
0: Well, I mean, that's not the point. It's just it's hard. It's, it's a hard conversation to have without addressing it, I guess. So.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting because like these issues in particular, with the introduction of Galactus, and the Silver Surfer, who are these otherworldly beings. It's hard to see a lot of times. the thing with Kirby was he was always obsessed with mythology and religion. Oh yeah, and I mean, history, and
0: that, that I mean that comes through. And you Very could, clearly, I mean, Galactus is basically a god and Silver yeah. Surfer becomes a fallen angel.
1: Yeah, and, and the thing is, is like you could see his influences on these stories and these characters, and I don't know what Stan's are, necessarily. You could see when he says, like, I created the Silver Surfer and, the, and Galactus, you, you kind of believe Kirby, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think what Stan really brings to, you know, it's that snappy dialogue and bickering that pushes the Fantastic Four beyond being interesting-looking and iconic-looking characters to, you know, their personalities that have endured for decades. The fact that the thing, like you mentioned, is so concerned about what other people think of him. Like, why? Like, you're a superhero, but... He's a monster. He's a monster, <laughs> yeah. you know? There's that heartbreaking scene where his girlfriend is blind, and he sees her talking to Silver Surfer and just assumes that even though she's blind and can't see, she, she would still prefer to be with this sort of... This beautiful glistening godlike figure than him, and and he's not even mad. He says something like, "You know, he stole my girlfriend. And he wasn't even
1: trying to. I can't hold that against him. It's <laughs> it's so sad." So let's let's just talk a little bit more about the plot. Uh, yeah, we'll give that scene a little more context. Sure. So essentially, Galactus is this all powerful cosmic being that travels around the universe looking for planets to absorb, absorb and steal their energy. He like feeds off of them, right. sort of like Unicron and Transformers the animated movie wow you keep keep going to that one man influenced by fantastic four <laughs> well yeah and, and
0: but before he gets there is the fantastic four are are met with the silver surfer the herald of galactus who's mm-hmm. come to, he, he sort of cruises through the universe scouting for planets that'll that'll feed his master and he, he happens upon Earth there the, where the conflict comes though is that typically galactus just eats dead worlds and this is the first time Silver Surfer has encountered a world not just intelligent life, but advanced life and begins to sort of have some doubts about his purpose and what Galactus is doing. Galactus shows up though and doesn't even give a shit. He's not evil. He's a god and he it doesn't matter to him. Like why why should I care that these apes can talk? Like, I just need <laughs> I just need the food and I'm more important than that. And it's not about good or bad. It's just I am, and I need to continue to be. So, that's just what happens. I'm the universe, kind of stuff.
1: The Fantastic Four, you know, they try to fight back. At least, you know, the thing beats up the Silver Surfer. Yeah, Clobber in time. Yeah, et cetera. But they can't do anything to Galactus because he's just this super powerful dude. Right. Who, despite being a demigod, still has to
0: put a machine
1: together <laughs> to e- eat the planet. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but the Watcher is also involved in this.
0: Yes, who has been a recurring Fantastic Four character at this point.
1: He's another otherworldly being, sort of a godlike figure that has sworn neutrality. Yeah. He's basically said, I'm never going to get involved. I'm just here to watch. But he kind of always helps the Fantastic Four.
0: Yeah, yeah. His workaround here is, I'll show the Human Torch where to get the thing to save the day, but I won't hand it to him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's so great. He sends the Human Torch on this kind of mind-blending adventure through space and time. And this is the 60s, so this is like the beginning of this whole kind of psychedelic, trippy kind of artwork being incorporated into a lot of superhero comics. You see a lot of that in Fantastic Four. Uh, A lot of their cosmic stuff, they did these kind of otherworldly kind of images, and they would even use collages uh, sometimes. When the Human Torch
0: comes back from traveling through space and time to get the ultimate nullifier that they use to defeat galactus he passes out from just being overwhelmed by the the sheer grandeur of what he had seen
1: um, yeah they're worried that Well, the Watcher's worried. He's just like, this could ruin him forever. Oh, yeah, we broke his brain. Yeah, because this is just some otherworldly shit. (laughs) And he just, human beings can't handle this. But then I think there's a point where he's just like, I think he's going to be okay because human beings are dumb, more or less. Like, he's going to forget this because it's just so incomprehensible to humans. I love that part. But what happens is the Silver Surfer, when fighting the thing, kind of crashes into uh, the thing's... Uh, girlfriend Alicia, Alicia. Yep. Uh, into her uh, apartment and because she she's blind she doesn't see what he looks like doesn't see that he's this kind of naked gorgeous god yeah this silver featureless thing and she convinces him of the worthiness of humanity
0: her apartment is full of art and she clearly concerned about what's going to happen and, and slowly but surely she kind of breaks through there's a great shot of him <laughs> She feeds him and he doesn't. He's. He like argues, why would I waste time chewing it? And he just he like uses cosmic rays to absorb the bowl of food, including the bowl. He just like. He's just so alien and disconnected. Yeah. He's like, why would I eat? I'm just going to do it this way.
1: It's more efficient. <laughs> Johnny returns with this device and Reed goes to use it on Galactus. Reed, who's kind of an asshole. Yeah, it's pretty great. He's just. It's great. I think it's great. He has that disconnected scientist character who's just more focused on the work than on anything else. Yeah. It's fun to see in a superhero, and I think that's what makes him kind of a fascinating character.
0: For sure. And he's not, you know, being problematic in a late yes. 60s way about there's, just dismissing his wife.
1: There's a lot of kind of like, in all the other characters, including Ben Grimm, The Thing, and uh, Johnny. Get out of here, Sue! You're hysterical. <laughs> yeah, a lot of kind of like, this dame, am I right? <laughs> Does it get better for her?
0: Like, do they eventually give her stuff to do? I mean, there are moments... I mean, th- even if it takes decades. This was almost 60 oh, years there's ago. There's definitely so-
1: great stuff with her in modern Fantastic Four oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. It is kind of a bummer how she's treating this. There are moments where she gets her time to shine, but there are other stories. Obviously, Namor is fixated on her, and it's all about her beauty and all that stuff. And Namor being the Marvel Aquaman. Yeah. He's actually... Older than Aquaman? Yeah, I mean, he's... He's the first Marvel character ever created. Yeah, so Reed goes to use this uh, device on Galactus. Oh, yeah, and it's so
0: powerful it could destroy the entire universe. Yeah. And he In says, the
1: name of the eternal cosmos, put it down. Your feeble mind cannot begin to comprehend its power. You hold the means to destroy a galaxy, to delay waste to a universe. And should the universe crumble, can Galactus survive it? And
0: what is he... He says something to the Watcher to the effect of, you gave matches to children. What's wrong with you?
1: The Watcher basically says, like, look at the courage that they displayed. You should let them go.
0: (laughs) Right, and also reminds Galactus that both of them had similarly humble origins and that there was potential here for them to do great things. And there's a great panel where Galactus is sort of receding back into the cosmos, and and he sort of says, like, you know, okay, like, I'm allowing you to continue to progress, but you have potential in you, but earn it and, and live
1: up to it. The game is ended. The prize has eluded me. And at last I perceive the glint of glory within the race of man. Be ever worthy of that glory, humans. Be ever mindful of your promise of greatness, for it shall one day lift you beyond the stars or bury you within the ruins of war. The choice is yours. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of Cold War panic in yeah. there. But there's a lot of like that kind of grandiose fire and brimstone. A lot of the 60s Kirby and Stanley stuff is this kind of heightened uh, melodramatic Yeah, no, it's, the, it's this
0: really fun mixture of Old Testament fire and brimstone with sort of emerging, exciting new technological advances.
1: It's almost like dumbed down Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) I mean, in a way, it kind of takes like a lot of the storytelling that Shakespeare did with the dramatic irony kind of stuff and just lays it on ultra thick. And then the the last issue kind of ends with Johnny going to college.
0: Yeah. You uh, you actually asked me to read the one afterwards, which uh, splits the difference between (laughs) uh, Johnny acclimating to campus life and the thing being replaced by an imposter. And the thing's already having some uh, some anxiety around his uh,
1: ugliness. The issue's called This Man, This Monster. Yeah,
0: and there's this guy who who hates Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, and develops this device to copy another person's physical form. So he turns himself into the thing, turns the thing back into his human form, pretends to be the thing to kill Reed Rich or er, to... I don't know if his plan was to kill him or just to find out he was a fraud. But like, No, he's
1: going to strand him in this other kind of alternate reality.
0: Right. Well, thats I don't know if he knew he was going to do that, but yeah, Reed Richards built a portal to some
1: other yeah. place. and uh... I think he just goes there to sabotage him, sure. essentially. And, and then Reed and... had built this portal, and then he's like, I need your help, Ben, in order to go through this portal and come back unscathed, so I'm going to tie myself to this rope, go through this portal, and you just have to hold on to it.
0: Yeah, and he learns that despite all of his arrogance and his sort of dismissiveness that Mr. Fantastic is not doing this for his own personal glory. He is doing it for the betterment of mankind. And yeah. And the last minute he, he feels bad and he saves him, but he dies in this portal and the thing turns back into the thing. And he's kind
1: of like, well, if this, if I do one good thing, it's to save this person who's trying to help humanity. Yeah. (laughs) Again, like laying on super thick with a dramatic irony, but the machine that Reed builds in order to travel, through this alternate reality or this other dimension, it's just just crazy. Yeah, it looks design. like an M.C. Escher. Yeah, it doesn't illustration. look any kind of r- real, tangible device, but it looks like this just gnarly Kirby drawing. And then when Reed travels through it, it's another one of those kind of splash pages that's like a collage with like kind of actual uh, real yeah. kind of like newsprint, almost newsprint kind of replicated images of planets and then also kind of like spiral kind it's very 60s yeah uh, but it's pretty great actually does this work a little better in color it absolutely works better in color there are there are a few instances of those
0: collages in in the issues I read that in black and white you just can't tell what's going on yeah
1: yeah you know the fake thing kind of tosses Reed back because he feels bad but I, I kind of want to talk a bit about Kirby's art in this context because I love this page mostly for its simplicity but also for his use of action because I think Kirby is his nickname was Jack King Kirby (laughs) he's considered by a lot of big comic book guys to be the best of the best this one page which we'll share uh, on social media shows his use of action and his line work and all that stuff what I love about Kirby is he's always cognizant of the frame And they kept their kind of framing pretty minimal. A lot of times it's just kind of six. uh, They break it down to four or six kind of panels per page, or sometimes nine. But he's always interested in how each panel follows or precedes the next panel. And each one kind of works independently. And he's great with blocking and kind of framing, oftentimes putting multiple characters within a frame but drawing your eye around the frame. So if there's a character in the foreground, there's a character in the the middle ground, and the character in the background, it's always purposely done for the dialogue to flow, but also for for your eye to flow through that whole image. And he was so great at action sequences for that reason. There's always connective tissue, and that's one of the hard things with comics because there's no actual action. (laughs) It's just images. So there needs to be that connective between the panels, and he was a master at that. But also his design for the thing. I mean, look at that. It's just a thing of beauty. And a lot of his art is almost kind of, I don't mean this pejoratively, it's kind of ugly, but almost intentionally it's blocky. And I love that kind of shapes. And it took me a long time to really warm up to his artwork. When I was younger, I was just like, I don't get this. Yeah. I was pretty dismissive of it. But when I finally clicked with it, he's become one of my favorites. But his character design is often replicated, but never at the level of... of of his craft, sure.
0: I mean, it, it's
1: it's sort of the mental
0: image I I have of this era of comics. Didn't really realize it until sitting down with this that this was you know, specifically. I was thinking of Jack Kirby when I think of that sort of retro mid century design and that that finds its way into a lot of places. Johnny Quest kind of stuff all seems to exist in a branch off of Jack Kirby. Yeah, uh, the Fantastic Four have to this. Date not successfully made the leap to the big screen, and in in my sort of research here, I found a couple of pieces where where people sort of expressed some thoughts on why. This one guy, David Sims, wrote a piece for the Atlantic. Oh, yeah. I like David Sims. Said it's not the heroes that are the problem; it's characters like Doctor Doom, and that he's he's so campy, and movies. You know, at the time that he wrote it, no one was really willing to embrace that. Any effort to make Doom a serious live action character just doesn't work even uh this piece by nathan rabin uh wrote this for the dissolve when that was a website this was out of his review of fantastic four rise of the silver surfer was which was the the second ff movie to come out in the early
1: 2000s directed by tim story
0: to me the failed mediocrity of fantastic four rise of the silver surfer is infinitely worse than the garish tacky awfulness of say joel schumacher's batman and robin because at least the latter left a lasting impression. It has the courage of its convictions, where Rise is gutless and impersonal. Batman and Robin makes wrong choices at every turn, but they're they're strong wrong choices, where his story and his collaborators invariably steer their material in the safest, blandest direction possible. Batman and Robin's screaming, intense ugliness is preferable to the yawning void of the Fantastic Four movies. And I think that's 100% right, because reading this, there's so much... There's so much. (laughs) And no one has either wanted to or been willing to really commit to embracing all of these big, wacky, fun ideas. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think the closest we've come is obviously Incredibles. That nails sort of the family dynamic, uh, some of the power set stuff. Obviously, Miss is Incredible. is similar to Reed Richards. But those movies are very... I don't want to say grounded. They're more interested in kind of like the spy aspect of kind of 60s movies. And they
0: they are still very postmodern, even as as sort of uh, classic as the setup is. And even the the mid-century world that they seem to exist in is the perfect setting for a a Silver Age Fantastic Four story. But it's all about sort of playing with the idea of a superhero and their relationship to people. Like- I mean, the intro of the original Incredibles where uh, he he gets sued by a guy who he saved not knowing the guy was trying to kill himself is like kind of sets the tone for the the type of uh, stakes they're playing with. Who knows? Maybe now that um, Marvel has them back under their umbrella, there's room for them to maybe try to do something silly. I mean, they've proven with Guardians of the Galaxy that they're willing to... Explore some of that wackier cosmic stuff.
1: For me, what separates FF from a lot of those other things, a lot has, has been made about how DC Comics are essentially, you know, when they started out before Marvel had their big boom in the '60s, they were essentially gods, and it was a lot of wish fulfillment. Like, here's Superman, and he's we are looking up to Superman, and even Batman, Aquaman, and all those characters. And when Marvel came along, it was about superpowers. Characters with a lot of power, but they were grounded in, uh, in a sense of reality. Well, I mean,
0: they were all literally people first. Yes.
1: They, you know, they they were people before they got hit by cosmic rays
0: and became the yeah, Fantastic Four. exactly. They were, they were people before they got bit by the spider.
1: And they still had problems. What separates the Fantastic Four to me is it takes that concept, those, and it's about those people interacting with the gods. What happens when we... Searching for the otherworldly and things that we can't possibly understand, but we still want to explore. And I think that's what I love about the series. Is it's always that kind of let's see what's around the corner kind of thing. Um, and I think that's the key to adapting a successful Fantastic Four movie or or series.
0: Yeah, and again, that's very tied to the the time. You know, the the Cold War and and advances in science. And you know, I wonder if maybe that's the the secret sauce that's been missing. Is they haven't done or haven't tried to do a period piece with it. It's always been contemporary.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, so Peyton Reed, who is the director of Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, and Bring It On, his passion project, and he was trying to get it made for a while, was a 60s set Fantastic Four movie. I wish... He could make that now. And they could easily bring them into the modern MCU if that's something that they're really invested in (laughs) with any sort of time travel gimmickry or space travel or alternate reality because it fits in the context of what Fantastic Four does. Now,
0: have you ever seen Roger Corman's Down and Dirty Fantastic Four?
1: I watched it last night. Oh,
0: come on. <laughs> I didn't think you'd actually get around to it before we did I this. told you I was going to watch it. God damn it.
1: Yeah, I got home, we watched Endgame. Oh, Game. wait,
0: we went and saw Endgame yesterday.
1: Yeah, and I went home, and then right as I was going to sleep, I put it on. That's exhausting.
0: Yeah. So the background here is Roger Corman, uh, King of Schlock, yeah. B-movies. Yeah, uh, yeah had but, the r- but
1: I do want, before you go any further, I do want to say that he may have made some schlock, but there's a lot of affection and a lot of imagination in that sh- schlock. Sure, he's a in an interesting figure, and I there's a lot of mean, good stuff. I well. didn't
0: mean schlock in a in a derogatory way. Okay, I'm just I I want to clear that up for anyone listening. But now we're going to say what he did, which is the schlockiest thing possible. Yeah, it's super schlock. He had the rights to Fantastic Four and was going to lose them, so he he on a shoestring budget made a movie he had no intention of releasing, just so he could hang to the rights for a little bit longer and from the clips I've seen over the years, it looks as bad as that setup suggests. And the whole thing's on
1: YouTube and now I'm kicking myself for not doing it. Uh, I didn't realize you were
0: gonna pull the trigger on
1: it. Because we had talked about it and I was like last, I always go to sleep while watching a movie. I just, that's my routine. I get in bed, I put on the sleeper timer, I put on a movie. I didn't fall asleep. It's only an hour and a half it just looks so cheap. <laughs> it's just so so low budget. And that's the thing. It's like you're doing something that I guess requires some s- imagination if it's going to be that cheap and a lot of it just feels cheap. And the acting is just it's pretty bad. I only recognized one of the actors
0: as um he played Chip the Android yes. in the Not Quite Human movies that I <laughs> it's a deep saw cut. that were on Disney Channel all the time. I love those. I think what's so fascinating about that
1: He's the worst part by the way.
0: Oh, uh, great. Awful. Who does he play? Is he, he plays Johnny. Okay.
1: Johnny Storm. So he's a better
0: robot than he was a, a, a human torch?
1: Yeah, he's just like so manic and just really over the top and not in like a Jack Nicholson Joker kind of way. <laughs> I mean, what's fascinating about that, it, it looks like something that would be
0: on Mystery Science Theater 3000, but it's got this iconic imagery slapped haphazardly all over it and that yeah. sort of that dissonance between, oh, this feels like space mutiny, but that's the thing.
1: Watching it, because like, I've watched a lot of Corman movies, and he's responsible for some, I mean, big directors. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Demi. Jonathan fucking Demme. Silence of the Lambs. That guy was discovered by Corman. And uh, Joe Dante. I mean, come on. Cameron, right? Yeah. So, like- These are big deal people that speak about him affectionately. So what I was hoping for when I was watching it was like, I know this is going to be super low budget. So I was hoping for like the spark of imagination and creativity. And it's, it's just not there. It it takes like they're 50 minutes and they're still talking about their powers. Like they just got them and it's an hour and a half movie. The issue with Dr. Doom is that the costume, like it's not awful. Surprisingly, it looks comic booky, but like because there's no facial expressions, he's constantly acting with his hands. So he's just moving his fingers a lot. And so like a
0: Power Rangers bad guy?
1: <laughs> kind of, yeah. So like like they kind of overcompensated. Yeah. But like the thing costume is maybe $1000 too a- cheap. Away from <laughs> no, $1000 away from the Ninja Turtle costumes oh. in, in the Ninja Turtle 90s movie. So like it could have feasibly worked. That first Ninja Turtles movie is great. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It is. It is. It's fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I've only seen. I saw the first Tim story, Fantastic Four. I had to look it up on Letterboxd to remember because I, I, it's so forgettable. And then I saw the new one that Josh Trank did. That's awful. It's really
1: bad. Honestly, like the Corman one sucks. But I'd probably r- rather watch that one than the other ones.
0: It, yeah, it's just so dour. And again, like it's it's not that long, and it takes forever
1: for them to get their powers. And you know, in interviews, uh, the director said that for the the newest one he said like oh I want to do something that's like them going through the transformation and I want it to be like a Cronenberg body horror kind of movie and I was just like I don't want that
0: in Fantastic Four yeah. and he didn't deliver
1: exactly but he he is on record as saying like they took it away from him and they kind of ruined it in post I guess we can give him the benefit of the doubt it just doesn't seem like anyone knows what a Fantastic Four movie should be it's too bad that the
0: Incredibles are as good as they are and as visible as they are because it's almost like, hey, Brad Bird, just do it. I mean, you never know. Maybe they should. You never know, yeah.
1: I can't imagine that Marvel is going to just hop on a Fantastic Four movie right now. I think they they have the rights. There's no hurry kind of thing. Yeah. And I think in interviews, Kevin Feige has said like, oh, I think it's going to be a while before you see any X-Men or Fantastic Four stuff. I don't know. It's kind of a bummer. I could kind of see it being a series, mostly because I think there's a lot of kind of overlap with the show like, Doctor Who, or even Rick and Morty, where it's the this, this series of ever spiraling out of control adventures yeah, through I'm, space and I, time.
0: Yeah, this has Monster of the Week written all over it.
1: And you could totally do different tones. So this is like a horror episode where maybe what they're facing is something that's kind of a little scarier or one that's a little more broader comedy, ones that are straight hard sci-fi kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that template exists. I think that could be a great show in the right hands.
0: Yeah, I mean, after reading this, I am all in on more Fantastic Four, so.
1: Yeah, so, you know, if you want to read some more FF, I would highly, highly recommend Jonathan Hickman's run from a, a few years ago.
0: Oh, and he uh, is he the guy who is writing um, Manhattan Project? Yes,
1: in East of Eden. Uh, okay. He's, like, into heady kind of hard sci-fi kind of stuff, and so he brings like, these great concepts back into Fantastic Four. And over the history of Fantastic Four, their stable of ancillary characters has grown exponentially, where they now have like a school of children that they teach called the Future Foundation. They have kids of their own, Areen and Sue. Oh yeah, isn't Franklin like a god? Yeah, well, yeah. He has these otherworldly powers, but in Hickman's run, the future version of him goes back in time to warn them. And Reed actually starts meeting up with this council of Reeds from alternate realities, and they're trying to like fix everything. I mean, fix everything. I think that's the name of the first issue. Like, they're like, we can solve the problems of the universe together because we are the most brilliant mind, kind of thing. And I, our Reed, is kind of skeptical of this. And what's great is like if. You read that run, he goes from that run to Avengers, and Reed is part of the Illuminati, which is essentially this- uh, Cabal of super smart, brainy people. Yeah, so it's Reed, Professor X. Namor. Well, I believe once Hickman writes it, Professor X is dead, so I believe it's Beast. Namor, Black Panther. Iron Man. uh, uh, Yep, Tony uh, and Cap. Mm -hmm. Uh, And basically, they're trying to solve all these big- world and universe problems, uh, and they kind of skirt some ethical lines there. Sound uh, like the liberal shadow government. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and <laughs> and then, so what happens is, is they kind of tie in what was going on with FF with all these alternate realities that are starting to crash together and to destroy everything. Uh, and so that leads to the mini-series that Hickman wrote called Secret Wars wouldn't say a redo, but maybe lightly based on the original Secret Wars, which is one of the first big Marvel events Mm -hmm. in the 80s. A requel, if you will. Sure. The whole story kind of builds to Reed versus Doctor Doom. I don't want to give anything away because I think it's really worth reading if you're interested in Fantastic Four and and Hickman in general. Because it, it carries through his whole run of Marvel comics it has a pretty great ending and then after that the fantastic four comic went away for quite a few years it's just recently came back i haven't read the new new stuff cool. hickman's run is good you can read some of walt simonson's run is really really good there's a lot of good points to come in and out uh, after hickman stopped the matt fraction wrote for it and that's really great too where there's two series one where the core family ben johnny reed and sue and and then franklin and valerie their two kids kind of they realize that the cosmic rays that had gave them their powers are starting to make them sick, so they, they're traveling through space and time, kind of like on a family vacation in, in order to try and Reed doesn't tell them, everyone, about this sickness, but he's trying to figure it out, but he kind of posits this as like a sabbatical vacation, like we were talking about for a series where it's like a Monster of the Week sort of thing. And then the other title is basically Scott Lang, Ant-Man, uh, She-Hulk, Medusa from the Inhumans and um I can't Darla I can't remember her last name but she basically wears a thing suit and they <laughs> they take over and they become the Fantastic 4 while the real Fantastic 4 is away and the Future Foundation is part of that and there's just so many characters the little aliens and the, that gargoyle creature and That sounds really fun. It's so much fun. Yeah, I, I love nice. it a lot. Yeah. So it's, that's all really really worth reading if you're interested in more Fantastic 4. You got any recommendations or?
0: Uh yeah, actually, um the timing was really funny as as we were gearing up to do this one, I I went back to reread one of my favorite books, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Oh yeah. Which Very uh, good. which is less less about the Fantastic 4 connection and more so about Superman. the the right, but I was the the sort of Stan and Jack yeah, relationship sure. and Uh, The the elevator pitch for that is it's the story of uh, two cousins, one of them a kid in Brooklyn and uh, his cousin, uh, a Jew who fled Europe uh, leading up to World War II. And they they meet each other in New York just as the comic book industry is sort of born. And it's just this beautiful epic in a very personal way uh, of these two characters, sort of their lives weaving through the genesis of this. Major pop culture force, and uh, that's not doing it any justice. But I, no, it's I, very good. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's I, like I said, it's my my favorite book. I love it. So, been rereading that. Uh, the first thing I thought of reading this was the original Star Trek. It's oh yeah. It's that yeah. same blend of Terrific. out there super science with gods and monsters. I mean, the Watcher looks like a character that Kirk would have run into. Yeah, they both sort of exist in that same that same orbit of uh, mid-century sci-fi that's, it's just, it's a lot of fun to play in. If you haven't spent much time with the original Star Trek,
1: it's it's a lot of fun. I, it's been a long time since I've watched it, yeah. but that was my favorite when I was a kid.
0: Uh, I, I definitely grew up as a next generation household, although recently went back and, and watched through Deep Space Nine, which is,
1: I've never watched Deep Space.
0: It's great. And it's That's definitely what I hear. a lot of people involved went on to do Battlestar Galactica and yep. it definitely plays like a dry run for a lot of that stuff.
1: I wanted to recommend one more thing before we go. Uh, and it's this comic called Nowhere Men, And it's sort of loosely based on Fantastic Four. But it's kind of takes this premise of these scientists and it treats them as if they were the Beatles. So it kind of takes these characters and makes them as if celebrities and treated the way the Beatles were treated, but they were these scientists that kind of all have superpowers and stuff like that. Oh, that sounds cool. It's really fun. It's written by Eric Stevenson. Unfortunately, I believe, I think they had a lot of issues uh, after this first uh, trade, which collects, I think, the first six or so issues. So I think there's a lot of problems trying to get the next series off the ground, so I think they're super behind, and I believe it got so delayed for so many years that I don't think this is coming out anymore. But it's worth reading this. But you could see there are images of them, and they look sort of based off the Beatles, <laughs> but they're scientists. It's, well, and
0: that was that was an element of Fantastic Four, too, yeah, right? That exactly. they
1: were they were celebrities. Well, it, it's funny you say that too, because a lot of people called Stan and Jack, John and and, and Ringo. Now, John and Paul. There's a point of comparison made about them. And what they did for pop culture in the 60s is the same thing that the the Beatles did. Yeah, Cool. Uh, So what are we
0: talking about next time? Oh, so next time we will be talking about Penelope Spheris. Uh, Specifically, uh, we'll be looking at the movie Suburbia.
1: Yeah, she was director of the Decline of Western Civilization documentaries, which are all, there's three of them, and they're all pretty great. But I think, I don't know if more people would know her from it because I don't know if people really think about this movie in relation to its director, but she did direct Wayne's World, and she had a lot of issues with Mike Myers, so we'll probably probably get into that uh, in the next episode.
0: You know, I, I think we're definitely going to be focusing more on suburbia, but I definitely plan to, to check out The Decline of Western Civilization, and I don't know if I'm going to revisit The Little Rascals.
1: <laughs> All right, great. We'll see you next time. All righty. Thanks for listening to this week's What Did We Miss? If you want to know more about this week's episode, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Did We Miss for links to some of the clips, videos, and research we may have mentioned throughout the episode, plus previews for upcoming
0: shows. Drop us a line and let us know what you think, especially if we're talking about one of your pop culture blind spots.